In today's message, simply called Reading in Context, part of a series on a Bible reading reset, then rethinking the way we read our Bibles and how we can read our Bibles better as we prepare to go through this immersed study of this immersed Bible experience and read through the New Testament together to rethink the ways we read our Bible and sometimes the struggles that we have in reading our Bibles. So I want to begin by telling two stories, two stories both about pie, coincidentally. So I know that's going to make some of you hungry and thinking about what's going on at dessert. But the first story took place in, while I was stationed in Korea with the Army. And so I lived on a, the, my first duty assignment, I was with a motorized rifle company, and we were on a separate compound, which meant our company had its own dining facility, its own motor pool, all those things. And so we had about 100 soldiers shared a dining facility, or what commonly known in the Army may have as a mess hall. And so one year it was Thanksgiving, and we were preparing for the Thanksgiving dinner, and we knew the brigade commander, which was several levels up, was coming to visit, and we might even possibly have the division commander, a two-star general, coming by our dining facility to visit. And so I was the officer in charge of the dining facility, and Sergeant Wheatley, Staff Sergeant Wheatley, was my the um, NCO who was in charge of the dining facility. And Sergeant Wheatley was great. He served consistently great food, which I know sounds strange for an Army mess hall, but it was very good food. And so we were all prepared for the Thanksgiving dinner. Everything was laid out, and there was pieces of pumpkin pie perfectly cut with these little dollop of whipped cream, which I would have wished would have been a little bit bigger, but, you know, that kind of just right-looking thing. And everything seemed just right until the first person tried their pumpkin pie and realized that the whipped cream was not whipped cream, but sour cream. What had happened was in Korea, oftentimes we employed local civilians to supplement because we didn't have enough people, and they do the same thing here in the United States, but local civilians to supplement. So there were several Korean men who served in our dining facility, and they were the ones responsible for cutting and the pie and preparing it. And I'm not, never quite figured out if it was just a language issue or if it was a cultural issue what was going on, but there was something lost in translation there. I like whipped cream on my pie, sour cream not so much. Second story, a couple years later in the Army, I was down in Texas with the Texas Army National Guard and was out to dinner. Um, I was at our two-week annual training exercise, and we had some time, and I was at dinner with um, three or four other officers, and we were sitting around, and we were talking, and we were in a, the officers club, and the radio was playing in the background, and in the midst of that, the song American Pie came on by Don McLean, and some of you may know that, bye-bye, Miss American Pie, drove my Chevy to the levee, that whole, and so the three of us started jumping in, and we're singing along with the song, and, and one guy sat there, and what are you guys doing? And we stopped, and we said, don't you know this song? We were all about the same age, so the, in my mind, we had all grown up hearing this song played on repeat on the radio. And he said, what is this song? We said, what do you mean, what is this song? And in the course of the conversation, learned he had never heard this song before. And we thought, how could this be? But again, there was the question of, there was an assumption in our mind that this was common language, that this was something that everybody knew. But that's not always true. And so why these two stories? Because as we come to our Bibles, our Bibles were written, as it says in Hebrews 1, 
Verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So think about that. This is a writer 2,000 years ago saying that in the past, God spoke in many different times and in many different ways. In other words, in different cultures and in different times. And so now if in 1999, I can be sitting in a room and with someone else who grew up in the United States and we can have this cultural misunderstanding about a song and not even have a common shared language, or a few years earlier can be in South Korea and struggling with a translation between two different countries and two different languages, now imagine going to the other side of the world and going back in time thousands of years. And we realize that when we come to our Bible, it's a strange book. And there's lots of different things going on. And so as we come to our Bible, we can't assume that everything is the same. That the words used mean the same thing now as they did back then. Or we can come across cultural issues, things that seem just particularly odd to us. And then we come across all sorts of different genres of literature, as the writer of Hebrews says, many different ways. So there's poetry in our Bibles. There's stories, like the story of Joseph. There's wisdom literature. There's prophecy. There's history. And so one of the best ways that I've heard expressed is to say the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. The Bible is written for us, but the Bible is not written to us. In other words, it was written to people thousands of years ago, which means it assumed certain things about language. It assumed certain things about culture. It assumed all those things and assumed they would understand it. It wasn't written to people living in 2024 in the United States, in the Midwest. Or we could say it's for our time, but it's not about our time. I'm not suggesting the Bible is irrelevant. It's, it's, it's extremely relevant, but it's not about our time. It's about a time thousand years old. In other words, we can't just pick it up and think it'll all make sense. So we have to pay attention to the cultural and the historical context. The culture is what's going on. And culture is simply the, all those things we do. And so we could say this. One writer said, in a culture, the most important things usually go without being said. So they get in a culture, the most important things usually go without being said. There's all kinds of things that are assumed in a culture. And cultures take different forms. We can talk about the culture of the United States. But there are cultures within certain organizations. Our church has a culture. The Evangelical Covenant Church has a culture. If you're part of the Rotary, if you're part of a fire department, if you're part of a school system, there's a culture that goes around with it. We think of as we watch, if you watch college football or professional football, each of the teams in some sense has their own culture, their own different way of doing things, this particular cheers and particular language that they use. And there's all these behind the scenes and assumptions. And so we bring those assumptions when, but we can't map those on the Bible. And we realize sometimes there's no cultural substitute because we come to our Bible and there are some strange things. So I'm going to give you a few examples about how that works. I'm not going to go to the verses, but there is, if we say in our Bible, it's like, well, we need to do what the Bible says. Well, Paul in one of his letters says we're supposed to greet one another with a holy kiss. How many did that this morning? In some cultures still around the world, people still do that. But for us, that's different. So we say, oh, that's a cultural difference. There's a whole story, one of Paul's letters about meat sacrificed to idols. 
That's not something we deal with today. And so we say, that's a different culture, so we have to understand what's going on. Or Michael Byrd, an Australian scholar, talks about the issues of translation. And so he talks about when Bible translators came to Papua New Guinea. And in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But translators ran into a problem when they came to Papua New Guinea, because in Papua New Guinea, there are no sheep. Many of the people had never seen a sheep. They didn't know what a sheep was. They had no idea what a lamb was. So then how do you translate this phrase in the Bible and describe to the people and say, oh, and then John said, the lamb of God. And they're like, well, what's a, what's a lamb? And so the translators were having the discussions. They were trying to figure it out. And they realized that there in Papua New Guinea, that the, common, the most similar thing were pigs. Pigs served in many of the same fashions in terms of the things they did, and they were used for sacrifice in different stakes. But then the translators stopped and thought, really can't say the pig of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because then we're going to run into all sorts of other issues because the Old Testament talks about not eating pork and stuff. So in the end, they end up sticking with Lamb of God and realizing they just had to explain it when it came up. But the point is, there's all these things that go into it. And if we rush to try and put these things in, then we can miss things. So if we rush, and that's our tendency with our Bible, the way it's broken, is we want to rush and we want to apply it to our lives. But if we rush to the application, we can misuse it. And so if we disrespect the historical context, if we disrespect the cultural context, it can distort the interpretation. Or as Michael Byrd goes on to say, we have to grasp how strange the biblical world is before we can try and make it familiar to ourselves. We have to grasp how strange the Bible is or the biblical world before we can make it familiar. We have to realize how different it is from our own world to allow it to speak to ours. And that's hard for some of us if we've grown up in the church because the Bible seems very familiar to us. We hear stories and we hear passages and we hear about Joseph. My guess is, for most of you, that wasn't the first time you'd heard the story of Joseph. It's one of those stories that shows up in every children's Bible. Some little parts of it, maybe not all of it, but bits and pieces of it show up in there. And so we hear it. If you grow up in church, you probably hear it three, four, five times a year, the story of Joseph. But it's from thousands of years ago, and there are a lot of cultural things that go on in it. And we can jump into it without realizing the cultural differences. And so we need to read it afresh. And so what I'm inviting us to do is read afresh. And so I'm going to give a few examples of those from some other places in Scripture. So in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is at a place called the Areopagus, and he's speaking to people. He says, then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. All right. When you hear the word religious, what does that mean to you? What does religious mean? I mean, if you were to describe someone as a religious person, a Jesus freak, ritualistic, ritualistic believe in God, right. I mean, in some sense, one of the things that typically when we speak of someone religious in today's society, we, there's some sort of belief system, a system of God. There's ethical obligation, and there are some rituals involved in it. And we think of religion also as distinct from secular institutions like the government or the education. But in the ancient world, in particular, religion was exclusively about duties to gods in terms of rituals. 
It didn't have anything to do with ethics. It didn't have anything to do with the belief system. It was about a set of rituals. And in the ancient world, the religion, the government, the economics, the citizenship, the military, all those things were connected. So Paul is simply saying they affirm the gods. They honor the gods. Another example, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 1, says this. It says, then God said, let, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So there's this phrase about being created in the image of God. And this is one of those phrases, one of those ideas that books have been written on. Article after, what does it mean to be in the image of God? And oftentimes it's thought of as some characteristic. But we can run into all sorts of issues as we think about that. But if we go back and we understand a cultural historical context in which the time in which Moses was writing these words... That phrase, the image of God, was used in other contexts. And it meant oftentimes a statue. It was a representation. There was a statue created to represent the king or the God. And so when God is saying man and woman are created in his image, he's saying man and God are created to represent God to creation. There's a whole lot that goes on in there, but if we just jump in and say, oh, image of God, and we try and take it from our own context, we miss it. But if we start to study and learn about the historical context, say, what would Moses have meant? What would a Hebrew reader 3,000 years ago have understood when they heard the word image of God? One more example, and this one comes from archaeology. So we're going from now Genesis to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So in the book of Revelation... Um, if you're not familiar, there's this whole series of letters to various churches. And one of the churches is the church in Laodicea. And there's this line as Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, over the years, I've heard all sorts of exegetical gymnastics to try and explain this. Well, God doesn't want... And you think, well, wait a minute. It's like, oh, God wants you hot. He wants you on fire for Jesus. It's like, well, but it says neither one nor the other. You're lukewarm. So God would rather have you cold for Jesus than lukewarm. What? And think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Until people started paying attention to the historical context of the archaeology around Laodicea. And in Laodicea, there were a series of springs around there. There were hot springs and there were cold springs. The hot springs were great for taking a bath in. The cold springs were great with this clean drinking water. But lukewarm water was useless. And so it wasn't a matter of like being on fire for Jesus, which is kind of the way we as modern Christians, particularly in America, tend to read this thing like, oh, we got to be hot for Jesus. We got to be on fire. We don't want any lukewarm Christians. And it's speaking of some sort of like fever or fervor in our souls. But instead, it's about, are you effective? And as you read the rest of that little letter to the church in Laodicea, it's about effective witnesses. In other words, you've got to be somebody that's good for something, good for serving Jesus in some hot way. Lukewarm water is good for nothing. Hot water is great for taking baths. Cold water is good for drinking. So it's not about being hot for Jesus or cold for Jesus. It's simply about being useful 
and being used by him. But if we didn't know the archaeology, if we didn't know the historical context of what was going on in Laodicea, we'd miss all that. Instead, we'd come up with fanciful interpretations saying, oh, we got to be in fire for Jesus, or we got to be cold for Jesus, because if we're just lukewarm, Jesus... You see how that does? It just doesn't make sense until you understand that context. So in other words, we can get lost in our Bible sometimes. Or we take the book of Revelation. We won't, we'll get to the book of Revelation in our series on Messiah. But that it's a special kind of language. It's apocalyptic literature, apocalypse. So if you hear the word apocalypse, what do you think? Zombies. Zombies. Okay, what else do you think of? Armageddon, Armageddon right? <laughs> End of the world. That's not what the word apocalypse means. Apocalypse is a revealing or a showing. And so apocalyptic literature was a popular kind of literature written around that first century that used all sorts of strange language and coded languages and images to reveal the supernatural. And there were code words and languages and stuff, so it would have certain images that were like, when you saw that thing, you knew that's what it was talking about. Just as in the same way, just a kind of a contemporary example, if you see a political cartoon with an elephant in it, are you thinking about a giant mammal with big ears that lives... What do you, th what do you think of? Republican. A Republican, right? Yep. It's coded language. We see one with a donkey. We know it's speaking about the democracy. So there's this kind of language that goes along with it. Or go back and remember, you know, if you see something like back in the you know, 1980s, if you saw something and it had an eagle and a bear, maybe you think, oh, the United States represented by the eagle and the bear representing Russia, right? Now imagine that in literature and saying, oh, and there was a great eagle and it was attacking the bear. And you're thinking, oh, it's... A it was coded language, and that's exactly what apocalyptic literature is. So the book of Revelation has all these coded languages, and these symbols that everybody 2,000 years ago understood what they were talking about. We come to them today, and we create all kinds of crazy ideas what they're about. Because we're so much in a hurry for the Bible to apply to our lives instead of stopping and thinking, wait a minute, this wasn't written to me, it was written for me. And so we stop and we take time and understand it. Now, does that mean we can't get anything from the Bible without getting a PhD in historical theology, history and archaeology? No, absolutely not. But it is to say that sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes it's going to be hard to understand. And so I think a good analogy of that would be someone going to listen to a concert. You go to listen to a Bach or a Beethoven. Now, I don't know much about music theory. I don't know much about a lot of things. But I can go to one of those concerts and I can enjoy listening to that music immensely. I can go and listen to a choir sing and I, I don't understand why these three notes, maybe, you know, why the bass is singing this line and why the sopranos are singing this line. But I can listen to a choir sing and say, wow, that's really good. I enjoy that. Now, if I understand something about music... I probably can appreciate it even more if I begin to understand the theory. And so in the same way that when we read our Bibles, we don't need to know all those things. We can get something. But as we train and as we experience and we learn more, we're going to get a little bit something more about it, a little bit something more from it. 
And so one of the things we can do, reading big, which is what we talked about last week, reading big sections of the story can help us in this because it causes us to go past those little things and we get stuck in the little things, but to begin to see as we read the big, we can say, okay, I don't fully understand that image, but I get the idea of what's going on here. And there are also lots of other helps. And there's now slight contradiction myself. I've been talking about, we have all these extra things in our Bibles that can kind of make it difficult to read the Bible, but those extra things are helpful. So there are study Bibles out there. There are lots of, and I can recommend some that are good. Some are not so good Bibles, okay? But there are some study Bibles out there that provide you that sort of information. So as you're reading along, and even something simple like when it says in a story that they gave him three talents or three drachmas or it was 50 cubits long, you're like, I mean, did anybody go out and measure something and, and say, okay, well, that looks like about two cubits. Or go down to the store and say, ah, I, need, I need, six cubits of, need six cubits of carpet, please. But a study Bible might make a little note down at the bottom. That's what a cubit is. Or might make reference to a word. There are commentaries out there. And there are commentaries. So I have a shelf full of commentaries. And some of those are entire books. Sometimes 600 pages on one single book of the Bible. I don't think you need those. You're welcome to borrow one if you really want to learn all that back. But, but there are other ones that are simple one-book things. Um, InterVarsity Press puts out a good one. There's Zondervan puts out some that are called Bible background commentaries. And it just kind of goes through the Bible and explains some of those key things. It says, oh, here's this story about Baal. This, who's Baal? And it tell, gives you a little paragraph or something about who Baal or Baal is. Or it talks about a particular town or the significance of a river or gives you a little bit of the historical set of the context. So that's one way to do it. There are also some great videos out there. Um, one I've mentioned a number of times, there's an organization called The Bible Project. Produces all kinds of great videos for free. They're available on YouTube. Or if you have a Right Now Media subscription, which is free through our church, you, you can go on. And, and there's also lots of great context things there. Our church library, there is a series of DVDs if you're kind of old school like sticking some, watching it on your TV, uh, put out a Ray Vanderlaan, walk through the Bible. And he, he goes through and he takes people to Israel and he walks the sites and the historical sites and talks about the significance of the geography and some of the words and things that are going on. And so even if we just get little bits of those things, little senses of those things, it can make so much of a difference in our reading. Or if you have questions about resources, come and talk to me and I can point you to some resources. It's also helpful to read in community, which we'll talk about next week. Reading with other people can be helpful. So, but what I want us to remember as we go away for today is that the context matters. The seminary professors used to drill this into us. Context, context, context. Context is king. Or someone would say context is queen, depending on their leanings as to what. But to say that it all matters what it is. And by that, they meant not only the words around it, but the history, the archaeology, all these things, because the Bible was written to us, or for us, but not to us. It was written thousands of years ago, many different places, many different ways, and so it takes trouble to understand. But returning to my previous point, we don't need a PhD in archaeology. You don't need a master's in ancient Near Eastern history to understand the essentials of the Bible. It can help us understand, but we can remember this as we close the rest of that passage from Hebrews. But in these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things and made through him also he made the universe. It goes on, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So remember that the Bible is given to us by God to help us see who he is. And so we may not understand the archaeology of Laodicea or what the ancient suzerain king treaties looked like or about the nature of idols and stuff written in the book of Genesis. In the Bible, we can see Jesus. And in Jesus, we see who God is. Because ultimately, that's what the Bible is given to us for. So we can see who God is and what he's calling us to be. So I invite us to read our Bibles. Read wisely, but also read knowing that God will reveal himself to you. And most of all, he reveals himself to us in Jesus, our King. Amen.